When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. Really been looking forward to this hour. A gentleman in studio I've got huge respect for. I've sort of worked with him um, at the Olympic Games, a uh, couple of Olympic Games over um, recent years, including Tokyo 2020. But his real passion is motorsport. And his knowledge, arguably in this country, is second to none. He's been producing motorsport for years. He's been a trustee for the Motorsport New Zealand Elite Academy for the last 12 years. Now, does that Elite Academy is the reason why we are producing so many world-class drivers. He has his own magazine called Race Control and his own YouTube channel, Racing World. He's produced nine Formula One shows in Melbourne, 11 shows for IndyCar. His name is David Turner. We're talking all things motorsport if you want to phone the program, the telephone number is 0800 150 811. David Turner, a privilege and a pleasure. Welcome. Oh, welcome. Thanks very much, Mark. It's great to be here with you. What a better way to spend an Easter Monday, eh? David, has motorsport in this country ever been healthier? Have we ever had a greater point of view globally than what we've got at the moment? That's that. We could debate that one for hours, actually, because you could go back to the Chris Amon, Denny Holm era and go, yes, we were healthier then. Uh, are we healthier now? Yes, we are as well. You know, there's, it's generational cycles, just like Formula One, just like IndyCar. There are generations. There was the Senna era in Formula One, and, you know, now there's the Lewis Hamilton era in Formula One. So, yes, we are healthy, though. Yeah, yeah, what happened? I mean, you talk about Denny Holm, uh, Chris Amon, Bruce McLaren. Um, we had this sort of global point of view in Formula One and then suddenly sort of throughout arguably the late 70s, Chris Amon's still there, throughout the 1980s, we seemed to just sort of drop off the radar. We no longer had that point of view, even though the McLaren name was incredibly high profile within Formula One. It, form, Formula One is a hard industry. Let's, let's just put it at that right from the word go. You know, like to get into Formula One, there are only 20 seats available per year and, you know, it, it's it's not what it was in the 60s and 70s. It's a fully-fledged business now that's worth billions of dollars. You have shows like Drive to Survive that convert fans. That That's done a fantastic job for the profile of Formula One. But the same applies to IndyCar. The same applies to Formula E. There are only X number of seats, just like being in, in, a, in a rugby team, say, for the All Black. There are only so many spots, aren't there? So you've got, you've got to vie for those, and there's a lot of competition on a global stage. The Game Changer, was that the establishment of the Motorsport New Zealand Elite Academy? 
the academy's played a huge part in New Zealand for sure. You know, it's been around for quite a while now. I've been lucky enough to be a trustee for for twelve years now, going into my thirteenth year with it. And um, you know, our our track record we're very proud of. It's a it's a, a trust that its sole goal is to give drivers an edge outside of the car. We don't proclaim to teach them how to drive a car. We don't do that. That's not our business. Our business is to provide them with tools in their toolbox, like how to conduct themselves in an interview, how to do sponsorship, media, that sort of thing. That's where we excel. Okay, so how do you identify how do you identify the drivers in the first place and the pathway from then identifying them to actually bringing them into this elite academy? Is it a scholarship? It's like a scholarship in many ways because they're with us for a year. So we don't we have an, a camp in Otago that lasts a week long, which we do in July, which is run, used to be run with High Performance Sport New Zealand, now Otago Academy of Sport, uh, and the University of Otago. The reason we do it in Otago is because the university helped support us with so much of the, the thing that they do, to, you know, tutorial, the whole deal. So what other what are the motorsport events here in New Zealand that give young drivers the opportunity? When you look at motorsport in this country, for young drivers, how is it defined? Is it at um, are we talking go karts? What are we talking? Well, I think the pe- the pedigree comes from karting, without a doubt. You know, like I, I raced karts when I was a kid myself, and it teaches you so many skills. My father, you know, was very keen for both me and my brother to race karts because it taught us how to perhaps be better drivers on the road. That was his logic behind it. So I think grooming ground, no matter where you are around the world, karting is certainly the entry level. Okay, who are the drivers that have you've had direct contact with who have come through the Motorsport New Zealand Elite Academy? Can you name them? Those that <laughs> now might be pretty familiar household names. I just want to give people an idea and put in context just how good this Elite Academy is. Well, I'll break it down for you for a start. There's been nearly 150 kids go through the Academy over the years that it's been going. Of that, 36% of them now earn a full-time living out of the sport. Wow, 36%. So our conversion rate we regard as being quite good. Names, well, I guess I could go back, you know, to the early years of the Academy. Brendan Hartley's one of them. Earl Bamber, Shane Van Gisbert, Mitch Evans, you know, I can keep going. Simon Evans, there's there's a, a whole raft of them, and there's another generation happening. Scotty right McLaughlin? Now. No, not Scott McLaughlin. So we can rule out both the Scots. Yep. <laughs> um, and the only other one that we really haven't had is Liam Lawson, and that was just largely because of where Liam was in his career at that point in time, and he actually wasn't in the country. So it was just one of those things. But the others, like uh, Billy Fraser, that's up in the US at the moment, Hunter McElroy, they're all graduates of the academy. So we're very proud of that. Um, Rallying wise, Hayden Patton, you might have heard of him. Yes. Yeah. I so, remember always when he won, was it Rally Argentina? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remember that. So, you know, um, it, it's not just circuit based drivers, it's rally. We've had a, a drifter through there as well. Um, we're looking at some options for some speedway drivers. Yeah, it's just on that, the drifting, isn't it? It's, it's interesting because when drifting first came along, I, I would imagine that older, the older motors, motorsport aficionado, the older sort of motorsport official would just look at that and go, hey, that's just for thugs and <laughs> street racing. Yet it has gained huge amounts of credibility. How difficult is it to evolve as motorsport evolves to have the nails to go, hey, we, a bit like mixed martial arts, I guess, to a point. We don't have to like it. It might be unconventional. It might not fit the traditional um, racing model. 
but if there's that much interest in it, we need to be a part of yeah, it. Exactly, and and that's what we did as a trust, as we looked at it and we said, well, this is part of the sport's future. This is where a fan base is, so we can't exclude it. And we have talent in that in that area as well, very good talent. You know, primarily it was circuit racing and rallying to start with, but you can't you can't be that single minded. The the aim and aspects of the trust is to put New Zealanders on a global stage, mm. and that that's first and foremost. It is eight minutes after 11. David Turner, All Things Motorsport, is my guest in studio. Telephone number if you've got a question for David, 0800 150 811. You can text your questions here too on 8833. Colin Giltrap, how important has he been in terms of driver development in this country? I think Colin's passion for motorsport is is what's led that. If you look at a lot of those drivers that are competing overseas, and you'll see the Giltrap Group logo on on their helmet or on their race suit. Without Colin's support, you know they they probably wouldn't be there. So a lot of young drivers owe Colin tremendously. The sport owes Colin tremendously, but there are a lot of other people as well. Mm. So I'm not going to exclude them from that equation but yeah Colin's played a, a, a huge part in the careers of people even like say Scott Dixon if it hadn't been for a, a Colin type person then we wouldn't have you know the financial support maybe or the profile that those those people have had but um, equally there's always a lot just like any sport there's a lot of the un, unknown heroes in there as well that are supporting you know characters and it's mm. not a it's not a cheap sport it's not like a, a stick and ball sport where you know, your training and stuff is the majority of what you need. This is an expensive sport to be in. And to have the kids that we do have on a global stage across Europe and across the US and Australia and at home is fantastic. When you look at the mindset of Scott Dix and Scotty McLaughlin overseas, do they do they typify the New Zealand style, the New Zealand way? How good have they been in terms of defining the brand Associated with New Zealand drivers, they, and, and, and how are New Zealand drivers perceived? They are brand New Zealand, you know, without a doubt. We'll use Dixon as the example because he's been around perhaps the longest, but he very proudly has that New Zealand flag not only on his race suit, but it's on the, there's a little flag as a logo on the back of his racing boots as well. So he is very much a New Zealander. I did a series of shows in the states a few years ago about Kiwis and characters in motorsport, and and it was based in the US. It wasn't necessarily drivers, he was one of them but there was a lot of other people and all of those people are are highly regarded in the US for their work ethic and that applies to both the Scots in terms of how they drive cars but also the people behind the scenes. You know, a great friend of mine uh, Blair Julian was um, Scott's number one crew chief up until this year and now he's the team manager at Ganassi Racing. These guys get these positions because of what they bring to the table, you know, the, the and, work and ethic's what, amazing. Yeah, so, so New Zealand's work ethic it is what is it a step up from what you might get in America? Is it the fact that we are so isolated that a little bit of that Shelby Ride attitude, that ability, that you know, the old barbed wire sort of mentality? It still exists? Yeah, a, l- a little bit without dumbing it down, for sure. You know, if you look again, we'll use IndyCar as the example. Delara produced a, a, a huge manual on how to assemble the race car. So, and hopefully there's no American listeners listening, but the Americans go, right, well, we've got to do part A, then part B, then part C, then part D. The Kiwi guys will look at it and go, hold on, if we just do A, we can slingshot right around here and get to part D straight away. So it's just the approach in which they do things. And at the heat of the moment in, in a racing battle or at the Indy 500, those, mm. that, that mindset 
you know, is a big thing. You go back to McLaren. I mean, great driver, but a wonderful engineer, had yeah, a very exactly. mechanical mm. mind. And I understand too, Scotty McLaughlin is another guy who has a really good understanding of the mechanics of a car, understands the area of engineering, c- can talk at that level to those that are putting the car together. Scotty Dixon, do you need to be the complete package these days? Can you get away with just being a good driver, but maybe a little bit ignorant of the engineering and the mechanics and and how an engine performs? No, you need to be the complete all-rounder, regardless of what discipline it is, whether it's Formula One or IndyCar or rallying or whatever, because there's so much more to it and there's so much more off-track as well. So you need to be able to understand the car relates to the engineer's from the driving aspect, but equally manage things like media and, and everything else as well. David Coulthard said to me in uh, Australia years ago that he reckoned nearly 75% of his job was outside of the car. 12 minutes after 11, telephone numbers 0800 150 811. You can text us here on double eight double three. Any question regarding motorsport, the New Zealand drivers, you're not going to get a guy who knows more than my guest in studio, David Turner. Look, we will take a break shortly, but just I just want to finish this segment by asking, is there being work... Uh, uh, look, I saw the um, film and the sort of the uh, docu-series type thing they did on Bruce McLaren that McLaren put out as yep. part of their, um, what was it, their 50, 50th? anniversary or yeah. one of their um, sort of anniversaries and uh, and I see McLaren are trying to be go back and reminisce and bring to the forefront their heritage. Are we doing anything to try and have a direct connection with McLaren F1 and New Zealand now? Is there any work being done in that area saying hey honour Bruce McLaren by having a pathway for New Zealand drivers? I don't think that a New Zealander is going to get any favours in terms of getting a deal with with McLaren. Emma Gilmore is driving for their Extreme Rally team at the moment, so that's fantastic. So there is a New Zealander involved in the McLaren programme as such, but no, it's it's a commercial business as well, and and Zach Brown runs a pretty mean business, and he has to because that's called survival. So no, there's no favours given, but equally if the talent's there, in the case of Emma Gilmore, she was the best person to be selected for their, their Extreme Rally team so it, it's great It is coming up to 15 minutes after 11 you're listening to SENZ we will take a break just a reminder too between 12 and 1 this afternoon Sky Sport broadcaster Stephen McIver is my guest in studio we'll do a spotlight hour we're going to look back on his career um, his upbringing and uh, I guess the highs and lows of uh, the sports media game so we'll do that between 12 and 1 this afternoon we'll take a break when we come back though we'll put the spotlight and focus on the Indianapolis 500 and talk all things motorsport David Turner is my guest in studio and we're talking all things motorsport, long-time motorsport producer David Turner, a man who's put nine Formula One shows together around Melbourne and also 11 shows for Rindy. Um, he sits on the Motorsport New Zealand Elite Academy. He's been there for the last 12 years. This is the academy that's brought so many of these top New Zealand drivers through. He's my guest in studio. If you want to phone the program, 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833. Just a text that has come in here, David. Um, so, Mark, th- th- um, this has come from Jared. He says, Mark Larkham on a Supercars broadcast posed the question why Kiwi drivers are so good. And he said, because New Zealand tracks are very demanding and dangerous, which in turn creates a more skilled driver. Is there merit in that? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about the dangerous thing, but then again, you could go out to Pukekohe and we could call that dangerous. But um, I, I think there's in New Zealand, there's, a, there's such a combination of circuits. You know, if you look at a place like Pukekohe, it's ultra-fast, ultra-commitment then in the car to get the best out of it. You go to a, a circuit like... Uh, 
Cromwell, a very long lap, lot, lots of technicalities within that lap. So you've got to be very smooth and very precise. There are varieties in circuits, and I think that probably does does impact in things. In Australasian circuits, so I'm including Australia in there, are typically quite different to, say, what you'd see in particularly North America with circuits like Mid-Ohio and Road America and stuff like that. They're, they're, just a, a lot longer lap length, maybe a, a, the cornering is different and stuff like that. But, you know, yeah, 50-50 on that one, actually. Keep them coming. And uh, don't forget, too, our text uh, brought to you by Temper Bed Post, like no other. You've got to have a good bed, don't you? You must have a good bed anyway. Temper Bed Post. I just need to mention them. I do thank them. Um, David, they talk about the Triple, Cane, triple Crown of Motorsport, Monaco Grand Prix, um, Le Mans 24, and the Indianapolis 500. Is Indianapolis 500, is that the race everybody wants to win? Is that the biggest race in the world? Um, Again, it would be debatable, and I've become very pro-Indy, so my history with Indy goes back to 1996 when the late Larry Rice showed me around the place after I'd been in Atlanta for the Olympics, and I kind of wasn't a convert then. I'd always watched the Indy 500 when I was a kid on television, and you'd see it here, you know, like two months after it happened sort of thing. Um, That's showing my age, but it's... yeah, it is. It's a very important event. If you look at it, regardless of anything, whatever uh, sporting attribute you like, it is the single largest sporting event in the world every single year. So it, recently at Melbourne, they were gloating about the fact that over the four days in Melbourne, they had 400,000 spectators, which was a record high for Melbourne and fantastic post-COVID as well. Indianapolis will do that in one single day. Um, already we're looking at over 300,000 seats that have been sold for this month in May for the one day. So it, it, you've got to put that into proportion, the fact that that stadium can cope with that volume of people. And, you know, it, it's just a, it's a phenomenal feeling when you're there and you you just look around and there's just people everywhere. So is it the one that everyone wants to want? win? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's certainly way up there. And the Triple Crown, you know, Alonso was a great example. <laughs> Why has it, like, I mean, it's never really been the lure of F1 drivers, has it? We've seen some drivers like Nigel Mansell come to IndyCar after their Formula One careers, but you don't see a lot of drivers taking a break saying, like a Lewis Hamilton, well, yes, I want to win the F1 Drivers' Championship, but I want my legacy to be greater. I want to have my name etched in the big events. Yeah, well, I think Alonso was probably one of those, and he still says that he wants to have a go at the Triple Crown. You know, he's won Le Mans, he's won Formula One, and he was very keen to to uh, win Indianapolis. Obviously, he didn't qualify the last time he was there. He actually walked right past you know, me and my wife after he failed to qualify, and he was pretty unhappy, that's for sure. But um, I, I think nowadays in Formula One, you get locked into a contract. It leaves you in place in a contract, and it doesn't give you the freedom to maybe go and exploit other events. And equally, that's not putting down IndyCar. It, it's worthy in its own right, and the drivers that are in there are world-class standards, and I think that any one of those drivers that's in IndyCar could more than hold their own in Formula One. Um, it, it's just a different aspect of the sport. Formula One is very technology-driven, and in many ways, IndyCar is more a spec series. But, um, you know, the, the talent still shines. It, it seems that when you're talking IndyCar, the qualifying, what is it, two weeks out from the actual race? I mean, why is there sort of this fortnight <laughs> in the lead-up 
to the race, which seems to break with traditional convention. Well, the Indianapolis 500 is actually all about tradition. Tradition is uh, a big thing at Indy. You know, the race this year is the 106th running of the race. It only didn't run during the two world wars. Um, And... Yeah, it's about tradition. 33 cars start the race. If you look at the administration building on the corner of 16th and Georgetown Road, the administration building has 33 windows on it. When they release the balloons just prior to the start of the race, there's 500 balloons. There's all these quirky little traditions that happen around that race. So it's, it's, it's just got so much legacy in it. David Turner is my guest on the programme. Text us here on the Temper Beard Post text machine. If you do have any questions, double eight double one. Uh, Scotty Dixon won it back in 2008, but he's been such a prominent figure in the Indy cars. Is it frustrating for him that sort of, what, 12, 14 years on, he still only had the one victory? I mean, only, and I say yeah. that lightly because, hey, a hell of an achievement, um, you know, and deserved all the accolades that he got with it. Yeah. But lesser I, drivers uh, yeah. have probably won it more. Uh, it shows you how hard it is to win that race. You know, it's nearly three and a half hours long, eight pit stops in it, so the crew can, you know, they, the crew can muck it up for you eight times, effectively. Um, a yellow flag can do you harm when you least want it, and that was the case of Dixon last year. But if you look at Dixon, his average qualifying position at Indianapolis is seven. So that's where he, over the 19 years that he's run on the Indy 500, that's where he's averaged out and his average race position is inside the 10 as well. So he's phenomenal. Has he, he's only won it once. Does he deserve to or should he have won it more times? Yes, I think there's probably another three that he should have won. But he's also won more championships than any current driver in IndyCar and he's the ultimate all-rounder. He definitely is. Sam, you got a question? Yeah, I'm sort of just, um, I guess, from that first thing, but carrying over a little bit as well, the, the younger drivers. I've heard a lot in motorsport um, that, like, money matters. You know, if, you, if you're able to bring money with you, you obviously increase your chances of, of making a team or getting a full-time drive, whatever it might be. Is that – how true is that? Like, can it, if a guy's really good at a young age, doesn't have a lot of money behind him, doesn't have a big name, you know, sponsoring or whatever – can they come from nothing to something? Well, that's actually part of one of the aims of the academy because we don't have a money boundary in that sense. We're there to promote talent first and foremost. So that's always something that we've shone at very strongly and looked at people that need that help, if you like. We're not saying that we do it financially, but we're trying to help them out that way. Yes, Money Talks and Nikita Mazepan and Formula One and the Haas team is a great example of that. Forget all the Ukraine stuff that's going on. But he got there because Dad opened up a very large checkbook. Lance Stroll probably as well. Yes, (laughs) because Lawrence Stroll bought the damn team. You yeah. know, but um, does does the talent shine? In many cases, no, not always. But some teams need that capital just to keep on going, particularly at the top end of the sport. What you're seeing in IndyCar really is the fact that the talent is there in many cases more than what the money is, you know. So th- those team owners are very chosen very wisely. McLaughlin is a great example of that. Penske kind of earmarked him several years ago and now Scott's there and he's delivering you know no, I for one didn't necessarily know whether he could deliver at an IndyCar level and man is he ever so the talent shines as opposed to the checkbook but there's there's always going to be a case of checkbook racing for sure. Is there like a discipline I guess you know when you look at IndyCar, Supercar, Formula 1 whatever is there one that lends itself more to 
you know, someone who doesn't have as much money. Like, I'm thinking of a kid from South Auckland, you know, who just is naturally talented, gets on karting as a young kid and is amazing. Is there a particular, I guess, discipline that lends itself more to, I guess, the Driver talent? skill rather than the influence of money in the background. No, mm. I think what happens is in the early categories from karting to, say, Formula First in New Zealand and Formula Ford, they learn racecraft. And the same applies in the junior categories of rallying. So they're learning, you know, how to get the most and extract the most from a car of that performance value value and then it goes on um, there's some smarts in there and there's definitely some business because to succeed you've you've got to connect a lot of the dots um, but I don't think there's one category in particular that you would say okay well that's an easier berth than the other because at the end of the day it's not a it's not a cheap sport no, no matter what part of it is including karting you know it's 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 not cheap but the talent that we have in this country, which again comes down to, I think, family upbringing and um, work ethic, like we were talking about before, all of those things come to the table, and that's where we're seeing our drivers mentally cope with things better than maybe some of the others do, and certainly that's where it gets above the checkbook racer, if you like. 28 minutes after 11, keep your texts coming on the Temper, uh, temper Bedpost text machine, uh, eight double eight double three. Uh, just before I take our next break, I do just want to go back to uh, the Indianapolis five hundred. How different do you need to set your car up, and how much room do you have to move? I guess in terms of setting your car up, say for the Indianapolis five hundred versus say what we saw in Texas um, when I think Scotty McLaughlin say finished second in, in a sort of an oval circuit. The Indy 500 is unique to the Indy 500, just like the supercar equivalent is Bathurst is Bathurst. And we all know strange things happen at Bathurst so, that don't happen anywhere else. Same rules apply at Indy. It's very wind affected. It's very temperature affected. Um, it is an oval, but really it's a giant rectangle, but turns... One, two, three, four are all very different. The difference between the, the short shoot, as they call it, between turn one and turn two is there's a gap, um, which is probably only 100-odd metres long, and the grandstand's there, and the wind factor comes into play. There's no grandstands down the back straight because it's the back half of a golf course. So the, the wind plays a part there. There's just a whole range of variables that come into play. Um, so setting the car up for Indy is very unique in that sense. What you see in qualifying is not necessarily what you race with either. So most of the setups, what, and more the aerodynamics and the downward force and the... Yeah, it's, it's, it comes down to how... In qualifying, it's definitely down to how far you trim the car out. And there's very What do you small, mean by trimming the car out? There's some little, very small... I got to see these firsthand because I was naive to them up until a few years ago. Some small little wickers that go on the back of the car um, that are, you know, probably five or six centimetres long that play a huge aerodynamic effect on the car. Now, you can run both of them on the under tray, you can run one of them, or you can run none of them. If you're running none of them, the car is very trimmed out. Uh, but that takes skill and bravery as well. Is it a bit like the America's Cup, where you don't want to show your cards early yep. on and that yes. you, you, you've got to continue, the evolution needs to happen in the, from that first qualifying session two weeks out right through the race day? Yeah, definitely. And it, it's, it's also like... Again, the parallel to Bathurst, you know, is the fact that what you see now is that that's a giant sprint race over a thousand kilometres. Indy's exactly the same. It's a sprint race over 500 miles. No longer do you wait and go, I need to be in the hunt at 50 laps to go. You actually need to be in the hunt with 10 laps to go. So you, you've got to play your hand within the first 25 laps of the race as well as the whole so, so, race. So it's a bit like a bike race. You don't want to be in too many matches too early. 
No, you don't. But again, pit stop strategy and how the team conduct that pit stop strategy is very, very important. If you've got any um, questions, 0800 150 is the phone number. I think talkback's a better experience when you do jump on the phone. Of course, you can also text your questions through on the Tempur Bedpost text machine, which is 8833. David Turner, motorsport guru, is my guest in studio. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more. We are talking motorsport. David Turner, Mr. Motorsport himself, is my guest in studio. He's produced a lot of motorsport on television over the years, and he's a trustee on the Motorsport New Zealand Elite Academy. We've got Bruce, who's phoned the programme. Morning to you, Bruce. Welcome. Hello, Mark. Good to hear you back on the airway, sir. Um, David, it's great to have you on. Thanks very much. Just listening away, should, may I and should I suggest that long-time petrol motor fans should try, try and visit or go and see a race live if they haven't in the next four, five, six, eight years because maybe fuel racing and petrol racing as it is is probably probably not going to be here in 10 years the way it is because of all the uh, the pollution factors, the the volume of freight that has to go around with it to carry these teams, the all that sort of thing, and the pressure on on the events worldwide. What do you feel about that? Um, I, I think, Bruce, the first thing I'd say is if you ever get the chance to go to the Indy 500, go, um, because you won't ever regret it. And uh, as I'm about to embark with my wife in a couple of weeks' time for our 20th trip to the Indy 500, I can testify to that one. It gets into your system. Are we going to see more electric-type racing? Yes, uh, I think so, which I'm not necessarily a fan of. It, it's fantastic, and, and it's a way in which we're heading. Um I think global sports like Formula One are going to be around for quite some time yet. It's truly a global sport. If you look at their calendar, it's expanding more and more. They've just announced the Vegas race. They've got the Miami race this year. Um, There's more emerging markets for that. So I think there will always be a top level of that. Uh, We just might see the dynamic change a little bit. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it? Because do do the major car brands come into the motorsport scene in terms of technology, terms of evolution, so that they can then transform? transfer that into the everyday uh, market yes. car that we can access, Formula One. You know, America's Cup's no different, isn't it? Technology no. company, a lot of what you see in the America's Cup ends up becoming part of just sort of mainstream sailing. And if that is true, then surely, surely fossil fuel-based cars the longevity is not going to be there. No, it's not. You know, you've only got to look at the price of the fuel. I fueled up this morning to come down here. It's like, whoa. But, you know, the, the bottom line fact is, yeah, it, the the evolution of the motor vehicle, shall we call it, is going to change. It's going to become a more maybe electric or hybrid-based IndyCar. In 2024, will debut a hybrid engine. It's not electric, but it will have a hybrid component to it. Well, we've talked a lot about the purity and the tradition yes. of Indy. How is that going to be received? Because that's could, been a well, big emphasis of yours this morning, the tradition of the Indianapolis 500. It was that would be debate. complete and utter bastardising of the sport, wouldn't it? No, well, IndyCar were very uh, aware of that type of question straight away and the first thing they said was we're going to go hybrid but you are not going to notice a difference in terms of how the car sounds and they tested the engine at Indianapolis Motor Speedway only two weeks ago and everyone said it sounded like a normal car going round without maybe some of its hybrid components. You don't get the smell. I mean I still it's funny every time I every time I sort of smell that high octane fuel even now it takes me back to when I was seven or eight sitting at Western Springs watching Barry Butterworth and a midget. (laughs) 
Yeah, look, the, the noise around the opening couple of laps at the Indy 500 will blow you away just as much as a Formula 1. Formula 1 events are different now to what they used to be. When I produced those shows in Melbourne, Ferrari was still running the V12, and it literally made your ears hurt. Now the dynamic is quite different, um, but it's it's still a combustion engine in many ways. So uh, I, I don't necessarily, in, in relation to Bruce's question, I th- it will change. It, it, it will, but how it happens and how we accept it as motorsport fans, that's probably the big debate question. Now, we've had a text come in here, and I love these type of texts because I'm curious too. <laughs> your greatest moments in all the different car races, F1, Indy, V8s, your greatest moment. Uh, can I have two? You can have two. Okay. Well, the, the first one, without a doubt, was 2008 and being on the Yard of Bricks, ushered over by IndyCar, and being the very first television crew in the world to talk to the Indy 500 winner, Scott Dixon. That must have been emotional. Yeah. Uh, I got goosebumps when you just say it. I, I still remember that day very vividly. And they found us. We were, I, I decked the crew out in black race suits, so we kind of had the all-black factor to us, if you like. And strangely enough, the IndyCar security team were able to find us straight away, so we must have stood out. But they they ushered us right to the Art of Bricks, and as soon as he'd done the flash interview for the world coverage, uh, which was on ABC in the States at that time, we were the first broadcaster to talk to him. And then we were there until 1.30 in the morning, and he was still doing interviews at, at that time of the day. So that's always a, a pretty... Um, humble moment I think that we were that close to this guy that had just won that race you know and Boy from Pukekohe yeah and he was still talking about going out and having you know Taco Bell for dinner that night as well so that was number one moment and number two moment would be um probably winning the Film and TV Award for producing the supercar coverage at Pukekohe because everyone sort of poo-pooed the idea of the fact ah it's just motorsport you know and it's up against other sports not going to name any and um you know, and and we did, and uh, my my desire for what we did back in two thousand and four, I think it was, was to make Pukekohe look different to how it had always looked, and a lot of that was just camera placement and that sort of thing. And did the, and did supercars pick up on some of that? Yep. And did that become now sort of mainstream and part of the template that we now see with supercars? I mean, clearly it's always going to evolve, isn't it? But yeah, was that game changing in terms of the way you produce that? There was there was some things that we did jointly with what was Network Ten at the time, who, who now you know that's evolved into Supercars TV. Um, so yeah, some of what we did there paved the way for what you see now. But it, my desire was just to make Pukekohe look different because it's a very hard place to make look different in many ways. You're listening to SENZ. Just a reminder, broadcaster Stephen McIver, my guest in studio between twelve and one. Remarkable career ongoing career. I've uh, done so many great things in his broadcasting career. We will talk to him between 12 and 1, a bit of a spotlight hour. If you've got a text, if you've got a uh, question for David Turner talking all things motorsport, you can text us here on 8833 and that is the Tempura and Bed Post. Tempura, is it? I'm sort of sounding tempo, tempo, but I'm Tempura. I'm used to sort of Japanese, eh? <laughs> I know, I've, I've spent too much time in Tokyo going Tempura. Can I have a little bit of uh, soy sauce with that anyway? They're directly now getting great coverage, aren't they? Can you say it, Sam? Yeah, temper. I've got it. Yeah, temper. Tempura. Tempura. It's a little <laughs> sort of romantic, isn't it? <laughs> you can text us here on double eight double three. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more.
Mark Watson with you. My guest in studio is David Turner and alongside of him is lovely wife, Lynn. Lynn, do you have a passion for motorsport? Because he must be incredibly... Well, I ask you, David, I don't necessarily want to throw you under the bus there, Lynn, if you're not comfortable on radio. My apologies, but we've got a microphone on, haven't we? Have you got a passion for motorsport? It must be incredibly hard living with him otherwise, Lynn. <laughs> I think he's actually helped me develop my passion with um, our trips going to India and the amazing experiences we have. It's, you just can't help fall in love with it. Yeah, just asking you, because you don't come in with necessarily this inherent love of motorsport, so you have been at Indy. Is it just one of those events, whether you're a sports fan or not, that you just can't not help but enjoy? I think what it is, is I've looked on TV at these races and when we get there, we're actually in pit lane and we're amongst the whole lot of it. And it's just super exciting. Yeah. I hope he runs around and gets your glasses of champagne and stuff, David. <laughs> I'm working on that one. <laughs> no, no, bottles of water. No, we do it properly. But. Okay, when you look at IndyCar um, in 500, Scotty McLaughlin, um, second yep. time around, yep. Scotty Dixon, how, how do you sort of see this going? I see McLaughlin being uh, involved in in this race this year. He, he'll write, he, he'll be part. He'll be yes. He, he'll be a, what's the word? He'll be a character in a yeah. in a bestseller. And Dixon, you just can't rule out. You know, experience counts in that sense. So he will be there. If you look at it, we're almost certainly going to get the thirty three cars at the moment. It's sitting at thirty two. It may get to thirty four, in which case someone will miss out. But let's just assume it's a full field at thirty three. Of that, I would say at least twenty of them are capable of winning. So that's you know that sizes it down not that much really where you start it's nice to start near the front but it's a long long race if you start within the top 15 I think you're in the game in terms of like in bike racing the best thing to do in a, in a peloton is sit in the middle there yep. drag coefficient the riders at the front pull yep. the riders Same behind rules. the riders at the back push the riders at the front and therefore you conserve a lot of energy is it the same thing here is yeah, fuel consumption really important in this race yeah well if you can save a, you know even a couple of laps worth of fuel by being second rather than first um, then that's that's going to pay dividends later in the race do your pit crews need to be exceptional throughout or do they yes. just need to be exceptional in the last 20 laps no they need to be exceptional throughout so Again, you know, my association with Blair, Julian, his brother Anton, and a number of the crew guys that we know up there, Paul Ziggy Harkis, who's the team manager at Andretti's, these guys train like seven days a week, just like a driver does. So they have a full fitness program, a diet program, everything. It's it's make or break in the pit lane. But the thing, the, the work ethic thing again, or the team ethic thing, particularly with Penske and with Ganassi, is they win or lose as a team. They don't win or lose because Scott Dixon or Scott McLaughlin did their part of the deal. It's the combination of all the parts. So if you get your fuel strategy right and you get your race tactics right, can you technically race on one less pit stop? You can, it, it depends on whether or not there's been cautions early on and you've saved enough fuel. Um, probably marginal at Indy, actually. You're looking at about 25 to 30 laps in a fuel burn cycle. So, um, And again, weather plays a part in it. There's, there's a, quite a few variables. But the, the most important thing at Indy is you must stay on the lead lap. You have to be on the lead lap. How do you stay hydrated? How do the drivers stay hydrated and how do they um, how do they service themselves in terms of nutrition because it must be incredibly intense and incredibly hot in there? Yeah, especially now with the aero screen on the IndyCar, it certainly is a lot hotter, so they're all running a, a cool uh, thing down into their helmet to, to bring cooler air into their helmet. 
and there's a, a water bottle, but that water bottle doesn't last that long. And like anything, whether it's a touring car or a Formula One car, Indy car, the water gets hot anyway. So it's, it comes down to fitness. And these guys are fit. You know, what you've got to remember is that Dixon's in his 40s now and he's still as fit as someone no, who's in their 20s. Don't he, worry, I'm older than that. He does a lot of triathlons, yeah. which I love to see. Yeah, he had all they the gear. They do it for fun. No, yeah. absolutely. I've talked to a number of riders who particularly do a lot of bike riding too, just to make sure that, you know, they do that supplementary work, that they are incredibly fit aerobically. Because that, I imagine, you know, if the fitter you are aerobically, I always used to say that with our cricketers, you know, I'd see Stephen Fleming always going out after 50. I'm like, yeah, but if you got yourself aerobically fit, your concentration levels would be better. And I'd imagine for motorsport. It's exactly that. And that's again comes back to some of the virtues that we teach the kids at the academy. We put them in a heat chamber that um, the Otago University's got, crank it up to, you know, 50 odd degrees, add in a humidity factor and have them do mock races in there to give them an idea of what the effects of hydration do. So that's that's another thing that mm. the academy does. And again, you look at Dixon when he gets out of the car, the majority of the time in all the years that I've been following him, he's not even red in the face. You know, he's that fit. Uh, David, I've got less than a minute remaining. It's been yep. a wonderful hour. Just give us the dates of IndyCar when the circus begins. I mean that in the, the nicest way. For the 500, really, the, the qualifying weekend is around the 20th of May and then the race is a week later. Those are the two things to bear in mind. Qualify a week before the race. The race is the 29th of May. We're there for qualifying, so hopefully we'll catch up on the phone as well. Love to. Lynn, thank you for coming in. David, as always, a no, privilege and absolute pleasure. We'll do it again. Uh, David Turner, my guest in studio this hour. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com.